All right, well, welcome back. I'm gonna I'll pray for us and then we'll we'll start tonight. We got a, we got a bit to cover, so I'll try to maybe a little longer than last week, but we'll we'll try to do our best to get you out of here on time. Um, let's pray, Father. Thanks for giving us tonight again, and thank you for your word. And I just pray that you would help us uh, think about the ways that we can uh, study it and understand it and apply it to our lives. Uh, this is. The whole purpose of having the Bible is to uh, be able to apply the truths you've shown us about yourself and um, and what you've done for us in Christ. So I pray you'd give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, last week, just by way of refresher here, we, we defined the Bible last week. We basically just spent the time talking about what what is the Bible uh, what is the big story of the Bible? How does that story, you know, inform our lives? And so kind of said all that in front of us was just what is what is this thing that we call the Bible? Um, we defined it basically as the God-inspired, authoritative, true story of God's mission to save sinful people for his own glory through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So that's the, and then we unpacked, you know, a number of things like, what are the chapters of that story? What are kind of the big uh, parts of it, like creation and crisis and covenants, getting to Jesus Christ and then the church and consummation at the end of it as Jesus comes back. So those are kind of the big movements of the Bible and the main storyline. Um, but today I want to just start giving you some of the practical things that we can do uh, as we approach the Bible to be uh, seeing it with clear eyes and understanding it as a book about Jesus, which is what it is. It's a book about Jesus. And so there's a number of things that we, we can do uh, to, to get there. So I just want to be helpful and practical uh, tonight. And it might be get a little technical a little bit. We'll, we'll try to stay away from too much technical stuff. But um, one of the big mistakes that people often make when they approach the scripture is, uh, starting with um, with like us instead of starting with God. So um, we don't want to do that. The Bible get, does not give us this list of principles to, to teach us how to study the Bible, but there are certain ways that the biblical authors and the Bible itself it understands itself and, and the, the, the way the apostles understood the Bible and the way Jesus understood the Bible that informs how we... Uh, should read the Bible. And so I want to work through some of those principles and then get into more of the practical uh, side of it. So um, where are we at here? Oh, okay. Uh, number one here, the first principle we need to see to get to Jesus in the Bible is that since Christ is the fulfillment of, the, of God's promises in the Old Testament, um, and ultimately the whole point of the New Testament, which is a lot easier to see, obviously. He's there a lot more. Um, the focal point of what he's doing in the world, and so therefore every passage of the scripture connects to Christ and his work in some way. That's the key principle, that, the, that every passage of scripture connects to Christ and his work in some way. Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes this, and he explains it in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He says, all the promises of God, and that refers to everything that was written of, uh, uh, of the Old Testament, which is what Paul was working with, 
All the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. So if all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, Paul says, this is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Uh, Paul's overarching principle of Bible reading is all the Old Testament uh, promises find their yes, or another word you could use is their fulfillment in Jesus. So in other words, every promise of God depends in some way on the person and work of Jesus for its fulfillment. So we can go to any passage of the Bible with the confidence that it somehow points to Christ and the redemption he accomplishes. Now, this is obviously a lot easier to do as we read the New Testament because Jesus is there, right? He's, he's in the story, uh, you know, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Or in the rest of the New Testament, it's very clearly talking about the work of Christ applied to our lives and how that works. And so the books of Acts all the way through Revelation, whenever we're talking about New Testament, it's really not that hard for us to understand, oh yeah, this is about Jesus because he's just so much more on the page in front of us. But when we get into the Old Testament, it, it definitely becomes more difficult sometimes if we're not looking at it through uh, the appropriate lens. And so I want to just give us some tools to, to work through uh, on, the, on the Old Testament in particular. So uh, a guy named C.S. Lewis, um, I like him. You guys probably know that by now. Um, C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, one of the rewards of reading the Old Testament regularly is that you keep on discovering more and more uh, what a tissue of quotations from, it, from the New Testament is. And what he's saying there is kind of a weird sentence, but what he's saying there is basically that as we read the New Testament, um, we, we also see how the, uh, the Old Testament is used to show us Jesus more and more. And so I think as you, as you realize, as you start to see it, like you realize how much the New Testament actually quotes the Old Testament. It's, it's remarkable. They're just using the Bible so often as they seek to make points, as the apostles explain and apply things. And so Lewis's point is that the more that we get into the Old Testament, the more we can start to see Christ uh, fleshed out for us. And so I, I am a really big believer in letting the Bible interpret itself as much as we can, right? The Bible doesn't leave us hanging on these big, big questions. So we need to recognize how the New Testament authors understood their Old Testament and how they used it and how they applied it. And there's a number of ways that that happens. Um, I think I'm going to point out three for us. Um, the first is through what we call promise and fulfillment. So in many cases, the New Testament writers understood the Old Testament texts as providing a promise about where the story was headed and identify a particular event as the fulfillment or sometimes a partial fulfillment of a promise. So I want to take us to at least a few passages uh, on this just to show just to highlight it for you to show it to you let you see what I'm talking about uh, Matthew 12 uh, 17 through 21 is one of these passages I want to read for us um, it says this it, it's understanding or it's talking about the servant of the Lord from Isaiah and it quotes uh, let's see it quotes Isaiah 42 1 to 3 but if we look at uh, Matthew 
12, and we'll start in verse 15. It says, Jesus, aware of this, this is uh, in the prior verses, the plot that the Pharisees are making to, to have him killed. Jesus is aware of this, so he withdrew from there, and many followers, uh, and many rather, followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So that's a rather long a quote from the Old Testament. Uh, Book of Isaiah, these, this is, uh, let's see, Isaiah, yeah, 42, 1 to 3. And, and what Matthew's doing is he's actually using these verses to, to explain how Jesus is actually the fulfillment of the Messianic promise uh, and, and is the Messiah. So, so that's where uh, Matthew takes it. And then you have another example from Luke chapter 4. This is one of my favorite verses or passages, actually, because I think it just highlights so well how Jesus uses the Old Testament. And it's in um, verse uh, 16, chapter 4, 16 to 21. It says, Jesus came to Nazareth, Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Here's the quote. This is from um, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so here we're seeing Jesus take the scroll from, of Isaiah in the, in the gather, gathering of worship in the synagogue. He reads that portion. He finds it and he reads it. So it's intentional. He's looking for it. He finds it. He reads it. And he just declares... Today, that's fulfilled in your hearing. There is promise and there is fulfillment. And then one more passage just to quickly look at is Romans 15, where Paul is actually trying to explain why the Gentiles are responding to the gospel. And if you look at verse 8 through 13, uh, most of this is a string of quotations from the Old Testament. But Paul begins by saying, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, meaning the, the Jewish people, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. The patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. 
And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And so uh, the Apostle Paul um, is trying to explain or, or talk about the spread of Christianity among the Gentiles. And he says this is just what was promised in the scriptures. And he rattles off a bunch of different verses. 2 Samuel twenty two fifty, 50, uh, Psalm eighteen forty nine, Deuteronomy 32, 43, Psalm 117, 1, and Isaiah eleven ten. And he's just using all these Old Testament promises of the Gentiles being brought in to worship Jesus and says that's what's happening. This is why it's all happening. <clears throat> so you have promise and you have fulfillment, and that's often how the, the Old Testament is used in the New Testament. A- another way it's used is through pattern and fulfillment. So you have the promises of the Old Testament that are fulfilled or at least partially fulfilled But you also have uh, these patterns that are in the Old Testament. And this is something that is often referred to as typology. Um, It refers to the way that patterns found in the Old Testament enable Christians to understand their own situation in, through, and under Christ. So an example, a very obvious example that we see is uh, the example of the lamb used in the sin or guilt offerings in the Old Testament. Well, obviously, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that that's a clear picture or type of what Christ would do as he was the innocent, sinless substitute to bring atonement for us in his, in his death. And so that's one of the things that um, we see is typology. Uh, we actually see it all over the place, but... Paul specifically uses the word type, and I want to point this out. This is where the word typology comes from, uh, is Romans chapter 5, 12 through uh, 14. So here's what Paul says here. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and that's Adam he's talking about, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given but sin is not counted where there is no law yet death reigned from adam to moses even over those who whose sinning was not like the transgression of adam who was a type of the one who was to come so that that phrase that adam was a type for the one who was to come, is saying, Paul is saying that Jesus Christ uh, is a type of Adam, but he's a, ultimately, as you keep reading through chapter five, he is the better Adam. He is the true Adam. He's the one who could represent humanity without sin, without fa- failing and without flaw, unlike Adam, right? So that's where you kinda, he kind of continues to unpack how sin came into the world through the failure of Adam, but the second Adam who comes into the world, this type, uh, Adam is just a type of the fulfillment in Christ. And so Christ is actually the true and better Adam in the words of Tim Keller. And I, I think I have a kind of an extended quote I want to give you from Tim Keller. He's a 
he was a pastor. He's retired now, I think, or he's done doing full-time ministry. Um, but Tim Keller um, it has this, this tremendous, very long quote, but it's worthwhile, I think, because it, he just highlights the typology issue in the Old Testament so clearly. So there's like three slides to this, this crazy quote, but it, it's, uh, I think it's worth listening to. Um, so here's what he says. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whither he uh, went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord, who, and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we would be brought in. <clears throat> Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, the innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so that the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. And he says, the Bible is really not about you. It's about him. And I think that is obviously a long quote, but it gives a great example of what typology is. Looking at these, these types and saying, how is Jesus actually the fulfillment of these things? Now, I, I do want to mention this because I think this gets a little bit confusing for some that when we talk about typology, we're not talking about allegory. And I know this is what typology kind of gets criticized as often is, well, you're just allegorizing the Bible to say that the Old Testament isn't literal or it's just talking about some spiritual truths. Um, but that's not right. That's not what typology does, and it's not how it works. Typology works within the historical realities, but it also understands that those historical people and events point us to what would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. The Apostle Paul 
doesn't, by saying that Adam is a type of the one who is to come, is not advocating for a theory that Adam wasn't a literal person. The Apostle Paul clearly believed in a literal historical Adam, and the Bible clearly teaches that. And yet Adam's role in this whole thing is meant to point us to a better Adam who would come in the person of Christ. So I really want to encourage you to not be afraid of the typology, to, to not consider the, uh, the Old Testament pictures and images and people and what they do and go, well, how is Jesus actually there in that story? And what does he do that's better than what's happening in this story? It's a really, it really does open up, open up some beautiful meaning for us. Uh, a third way that the Old Testament is used in the New Testament uh, is through analogy and application. So sometimes uh, the New Testament writers find some kind of resemblance between their situation and an earlier situation. And then they derive a principle from that Old Testament passage to address their situation. So when an author uses an analogy, um, they're not offering an interpretation of the original intention of the Old Testament text. They're not trying to say that this is what the Old Testament author meant or was intending to say. But what they do is they take it as an analogy and, um, and then they try to apply it. Uh, to their situation. So, for example, a good example, this is in Matthew 21, 42, where Jesus quotes Psalm 118, 22, and 23, which is where he says that the, the stone is going to be rejected by the builders. Right? And so he's, what he's doing there is he's describing the way the Jewish leaders rejected him. He's talking about those verses as an analogy for how the Jewish leaders of his day were rejecting him. But that's, um, though, though, even, though, yeah, even though many people actually take this to be a messianic prediction, that's not the main point. The, the main point is that Jesus is making is that the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, are rejecting him. And so are, by analogy, wrong the same way that the, um, the, same way that the great world powers uh, that thought so little of, of Israel uh, were wrong, right? And that's the, actually the historical context of the, me, the, the original meaning of Psalm 118, 22, and 23, that the stone that the builders rejected in the context of the psalm is um, that the, the nations, the larger nations around Israel were going to reject and, and forsake this little nation of Israel. And then Jesus uses those same words in application uh, to his to his rejection. So understanding the use of analogy in this way helps us when encountering some of the texts in the New Testament that are a little bit more difficult. So let me give you a couple examples. Um, 1 Corinthians 9.9 9 and 1 Timothy 5.18. Paul, in both of those passages, quotes a kind of an obscure text in the Old Testament, an Old Testament law from Deuteronomy 25.4 which says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. And basically, that, that passage is meant to protect the ox from abuse and say, hey, let the thing eat while it's working. You know, like, don't, don't muzzle it. Don't keep it from being able to eat uh, while it's working in the field. 
But what Paul does is he applies that passage as justification to pay those who are in ministry, which you know makes me feel great. I'm, I'm an ox, I guess. That's okay, though. Uh, <laughs> but the Old Testament text is, is all based on the principle of caring for your working animals. And Paul's application is basically, it sounds like it's basically, how much more should we care about the people who are, who are serving us with the word? That's the kind of argument he's making there. And so uh, we see that uh, there. We also see in Galatians 4 that Paul, and he actually uses this word in the passage in verse 21 to 31. He constructs what he calls an allegory. And again, I think he's distinct. I would distinguish what I would call an allegory from what Paul's referring to. Um, And I think for the most part, we think of allegory as we're just coming up with a fable to teach some sort of spiritual truth. Again, Paul's not denying the historicity or the truthfulness of the passage when he uses allegory. But what he's doing is he's taking the story of Hagar and Sarah, the two women that Abraham uh, had children with in Genesis. And in that passage, he's talking about um, basically the child of promise, and the, which would be Isaac, and then the child of the flesh, which would be uh, Ishmael, Hagar's son. And what he's doing is he's trying to convince the readers in Galatia to reject the false teachers that are coming into the church. And so what he's saying is he's, he's not adding meaning to Genesis. He's not saying that this was Moses's uh, point in writing about Abraham and these, these women. He's not disregarding the original intention of the passage. Uh, he's simply saying that just like there was a child of promise in that story, uh, supernaturally produced uh, in the case of Isaac, and those who would follow the false teachers to being like those born according to the flesh, like Ishmael. So he's basically saying, lean into the, the God who fulfills his promises. Don't lean into these false teachers. And he's using that Old Testament story to get us there. And uh, it may be sometimes a little difficult to get there on our own, but that's where... Paul goes. And so there's, there's some definite pa- passages in the New Testament that are harder to grasp because uh, they're just making these cases that are like, what are they doing here? Uh, I don't really know. But, but basically, that's what he's doing. He's, he's taking an analogy from the Old Testament and then applying it to his situation on the ground. Okay, so the first principle is that Christ has... Uh, there's a connection to Christ, rather, in every passage of the Bible. And, and that's the first principle for us. Second principle is this. Um, despite all of its diversity, the Bible tells an overarching story of God establishing his kingdom by saving his people through Jesus Christ and sending out his saved people to proclaim his glory to the ends of the earth. And what I mean by diversity is diversity of literature, there's, there's all kinds of, kinds of writings in the Bible. Leviticus is very different from Isaiah. Isaiah is a different kind of book from Proverbs. Proverbs is different from Acts. Um, but they all are a part of a broader story, a larger story that is um, non-contradictory, that tells the same story, that runs all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And each of these these things, uh, each of these kind of diverse writings have a role to play in that unfolding story. So within the story, there are points of 
continuity, so things that don't change, like God's character. And there are things that are discontinuity, too, which are things that do change, like cultural customs, right? The, the people who received the letters of Paul were not living in the same cultural time or place as the Old Testament people who received Leviticus. And so you do see some change as the world moves through uh, time, but you have continuity in the message, like who God is and what he's come to do. And that's what actually makes the Bible so amazing uh, when we think about it. It's not like it just plopped down as this you know, book right here. It's, it, it, was a, it was a gradual building of writings over thousands of years with many different authors, with, uh, with all kinds of cultural differences, and yet they all tell the same story. They are all, uh, they're all in continuity together on the issues of uh, what the Bible's about. And that's a really, it's a really cool thing, actually. It actually speaks to the truthfulness of the Bible and the trustworthiness of it, uh, because uh, you, would, you would expect people who are spanning about 2,000 or 3,000 years of time to have very, very different ways of looking at uh, the, the issues of God, but they're actually unified beautifully. So while we read the Bible, we need to be mindful of cultural, historical, and literary contexts um, from the passage that we're studying. I think it's helpful. Maybe it's not the most important thing in the world because God can speak to us even if we have a lack of understanding. But I do think there is a, uh, a helpful thing to know what we're reading. Are we reading the law, like in Leviticus? Are we reading a book of poetry, like in Psalms? Are we reading a historical narrative, like Acts or uh, Chronicles or uh, many, many other Old Testament books? Are we reading a letter, like Romans or prophecy, like Isaiah? Uh, knowing what we're reading will help us apply what we're reading uh, more appropriately. And so just be mindful of that and uh, and I'll just make a plug for this. If you don't have a, uh, a, a way of really knowing that or you don't have the tools, I would just suggest you get a study Bible that um, can help you understand that. Like every good study Bible is going to have a whole introduction to every book of the Bible, give you uh, a bunch of good information on who wrote this book, when did they write this book, where does it fall into the whole history of the Bible, um, and so, I, I mean, my, my personal preference is, of course, the ESV Study Bible. I think it's one of the, I mean, it is an incredible book, uh, credible work of hel- and helpful, and I use it a lot um, in my own life. Uh, but it doesn't have to be that one. Whatever one you want to get, any, any good study Bible is going to have a lot of uh, information already packaged for you, put together in a way that you don't have to go digging for all of this information uh, on your own. So uh, that's a good like one-stop shop. A good study Bible will help you with a lot of these things. Um, okay, number three, third principle to talk about quickly tonight is, is this. Because God is sovereign, he has ordered human history so that earlier events, people, and institutions correspond to later events, people, and institutions. So uh, when the prophets point forward to the redemption that God will bring through Christ in the future, they are usually or often using the language of a new exodus, which would have been a past event from their point of view. And that original exodus is pointing forward to an even greater 
exodus, if you want to call it that, or act of redemption that God promises. So when we read the Bible, we, we should be looking for some of these points of correspondence. We should be looking for some of this, these things that correlate together. And the, the technical term here is correlation. Um, when we read the Bible, we should seek to find out how what we're reading is related to other passages in the Bible so we can gain more insight and more light and more clarity. Um, and again, uh, a good study Bible will have this, but a lot of Bibles that aren't study Bibles have what, what they call cross-references. Uh, definitely, definitely get a Bible with a cross-reference. Um, in, my, in this one, the, the cross-references are in the footnotes. Some have cross-references in the margins, uh, whatever it is. But when, when you can look at a verse and then compare that verse to the other verses that are related to that verse, you can actually do a Bible study that starts to bring a lot of clarity. And, and, and one of the things that's really helpful is when you're reading the Old Testament in particular, uh, or actually, no, both, if you're reading the Old or New Testament, it'll actually tell you, uh, if you're looking at the cross-references, if that verse you're reading is quoted in the New Testament. And then the very easy thing to do is say, oh, this verse is quoted in the, in the New Testament. How about I go to that reference that's on my cross-reference cross there. I'll jump over to the New Testament where that verse is quoted. You can read how the apostles used that verse and how they understood it. And then that starts to unpack more and more for us what the meaning of the passage is and how that applies to us. And so again, just a lot of things that you can start to do uh, to, to try to identify some of these points of correlation from the Old and New Testament, and even from the Old Testament to the Old Testament. Um, so that, that's a helpful thing to do. But we ultimately know that God is sovereign, and that's why all this works together. That's why this whole book is like cohesive. It works, you know, even if it's, even if something that was written thousands of years before another thing, they, they go together because God's at work in it. Number four, fourth point here for Christ-centered Bible reading is, as we read the Bible and grow in our understanding of who Christ is and what he's done, we should constantly deepen our understanding of both the Bible and Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, the earliest followers of Jesus were continually going back to the Bible with their understanding of who Jesus is, and then seeing fresh things in scripture about him. So in turn, those new insights into scripture, particularly the Old Testament, uh, further deepened their understanding of who Jesus was and what he's done. So it's kind of this uh, cycle of the more you get to know Jesus, the more you dig into the, the Old Testament scriptures about him. And the more you do that, the more it reflects about Jesus. And it's sort of like this ongoing process of, a spiral rotating between Christ and the scripture with each successive passage sheds more light on the other. Or we could use another analogy, but uh, the, when the early Christians looked at Jesus, they did so through the lens of the Old Testament. And when they looked at the Old Testament, they did so through the lens of Christ's redemption. So they're, they're kind of playing uh, that, that game of both. Like the Old Testament reveals more of Jesus and Jesus reveals more of the Old Testament. And, and that's really how it works for us, too, uh, as we walk through these things. Uh, as followers of Jesus, we should want to read the Bible in a way, in the way that Jesus and his earliest followers did. Uh, not only is this an act of obedience, but it, 
is also a way to see Jesus more clearly. So we're changed to reflect him more clearly. If we approach every passage of scripture with the expectation that it will get us to Jesus in some way, um, then we will begin to see the scriptures in a fresh way. And as we do this, it's crucial that we remember, although the Bible was written for us, it was not written to us. So I want to talk about that concept quickly tonight with you, is that this Bible that we have is for us, but it wasn't written to us. And again, I think approaching this with an understanding of what we're dealing with is helpful. Um, The Bible was not written to us. And what I mean by that is this, that none of us are ancient Israelites following Moses through the wilderness. None of us are 8th century Israelites living through the decline of the northern kingdom of Israel. None of us are Jews languishing in exile in Babylon, wondering if God has completely abandoned us. None of us are 1st century AD Christians in Rome or Philippi or Ephesus. So when we read the Bible, there is a sense in which we're reading someone else's mail because we actually are literally reading someone else's mail. Uh, But this is a huge point, though. The Bible was written for us. So yes, we're not the original recipients, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't have meaning for us or that it wasn't intended for us. The, The Bible is very clear about this. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. So God inspired the human authors of scripture so that the very words they wrote were the words of God. And while the words of Isaiah were directed at ancient Israelites in the 8th century BC, God inspired those words as the means by which he would speak to us, his people now, beyond those historical circumstances and really for, for all time, right? The word of the Lord stands forever. So it's not even just our moment, it's all moments that will come after ours as well and for eternity. So though the Bible was written, was not written rather to us, it is written for us. And I get it. This distinction probably feels a little nitpicky and, um, and it might be, but I do think it makes a difference when it comes to understanding and applying the Bible correctly. Um, and I'll give some examples for that in a minute, but let, let's just look first at Romans 15 again, because I think this helps illustrate why this distinction matters, and then I'll, then I'll make some application to it. Um, so in Romans 15.4, Paul gives us a window into his understanding of the Old Testament. And he explains uh, why he had just quoted Psalm 69, verse 9. Um, so in verse 4, he is explaining the prior verse which is uh, from Psalm 69.9, and it says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So then the next word he says in verse four is for, or because. And what he says is because whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So from this verse, we learn uh, at least a few things about how the believers should understand the Bible and apply it to their lives. The first point that Paul makes in this verse is that the Bible was written for our instruction. When Paul reads from Scripture, he's convinced that God has specific instructions for him 
with, with respect to what we should believe and how we should live. But notice that Paul uses the pronoun our instruction. It's a plural p- pronoun. And, and he uses it to talk about, uh, really, it's for our good, not just his, not just yours as an individual, but as a community, believers get the word of God and can pa- unpack it together and work through it together. So when we read the Bible, we should expect God to instruct us. And secondly, from this verse, we see that scripture produces perseverance and encouragement. So as we read the Bible and apply it to our lives, God empowers us to continue to trust in Christ and his promises. Through the Holy Spirit, he uses the encouragement uh, of his scriptures and and he helps us to faithfully fulfill uh, those scriptures in us and he does that in us. So this is why Paul can say in the next verse, God, the God of endurance and encouragement would enable, will enable us to live in harmony with one another and bring glory to him. So scripture is meant to instruct us. It's also meant to encourage us and help us persevere. And then thirdly, uh, it produces hope. That is one of the key goals of reading the Bible is to produce hope in us. Uh, in, in that in our, in our day and age, everyday English, uh, the word hope is often used as kind of a um, an uncertain thing, like we're we're kind of hoping something doesn't happen or that it does. And so we might look at the dark clouds and at least this time of year go, I, ho- I hope it doesn't snow today, right? Because it's March and we don't want it to snow anymore. Um, but so when we use that word hope, that's kind of how we mean it. It's like, well, I don't have a certainty of this, so I I hope that something doesn't happen or that it does. But in Scripture, hope is different. Hope refers to our faith-fueled expectation of what God promises he will do. As we read the Bible, God deepens our hope in his faithfulness to fulfill his promises and enable us to press forward with perseverance and encouragement as we await that day. Hope is, in the Bible, hope is far more rooted in certainty of what God has said he will do and and our con- and our confidence grows in that. So here in Romans 15 we see that Paul expects believers to read the Bible for instruction to foster our, our hope in the faithfulness of God. And as we do that, God uses scripture to produce perseverance and encourage us as we follow Christ. So I don't know if you're wondering this or not, but this distinction of for us but not to us um Here's why I think this matters. Without having that category, we are going to potentially and probably actually make mistakes when we read and apply the Bible. So let me give you some very, okay, these are kind of like no-brainer examples, but I'm using some, some obvious ones to hopefully point you to some maybe ones that are a little less on the nose. But here's, here's one. Imagine reading Genesis 22. This is where God tells Abraham to take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the, mount, the land of Moriah, offer him there as a burnt offering uh, on one of the mountains to which I shall tell you. Now, you don't need someone to tell you as you read that, that that's not for you to do, right? Like, you're not, you're not Abraham. You, you may have a son Isaac, but you're not called to go kill him on a mountain. And This is, like, we know this. Intuitively, we understand that. We're not Abraham. He doesn't say this to us. But what does he say it for? He says it for us. 
He says it for us. There is a, there is a story here that is, again, as Tim Keller pointed out, this, this story of Isaac on the mountain and being offered in, in this way. And God, of course, spares Isaac's life. He doesn't allow him to be killed. Um, but he gets a heart, he gets an understanding of um, Abraham's heart and his willingness to sacrifice his son. And that, of course, points us to Christ and his ultimate sacrifice and God the Father's willingness to bring his son to, to death um, for us, right? So these things draw are drawn out of that, but we know intuitively we're not, this isn't for us to just emulate. Uh, but here's a, maybe a little bit of a harder example. Um, Matthew nineteen sixteen to 29, there's this rich man who comes to Jesus and asks him what he must do to inherit eternal life. After the rich man claims he has kept all the commandments, Jesus tells him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, if we think that these words are spoken to us, uh, then all believers would be required to sell everything we have and have no possessions at all and follow Jesus. But that's not what's happening. These words weren't spoken directly to us. They were spoken to this rich young ruler. To, they were written down for us. They were written down to teach us something and instruct us and to help us understand what Jesus is calling this young man too, and then help us to rightly apply it. And I think that the application of this passage is that Jesus is calling on us to stop trusting in our own righteousness and trust in his righteousness, right? The, the problem with the rich young ruler was that he believed he stood in, in right relationship with God through his own righteousness. And then what's interesting about that passage is that while Jesus, Jesus rattles off a number of the 10 commandments, but he doesn't um, he doesn't mention the 10th commandment, which is you shall not covet. He leaves that one off the list intentionally because that is actually the problem in that young man's heart. And, and that young man had a problem with coveting and desiring of things. And so that's why Jesus said to that specific man at that specific time, here's what you gotta do. You gotta, you gotta lay down your idols. You gotta lay down the things that are prohibiting you from coming to me. And that is your own sense of self-righteousness and dependence on material possessions. So again, unpacking some of that stuff. But again, if we just take it as a very simplistic, everything in the Bible is written for, for me to do exactly as it is, then we're going to be killing our kids and we're going to be selling all of our, selling all of our stuff and we're going to be just... We're going to be very, uh, really just kind of in a mess of a situation. The Bible's not meant to be a direct application in those ways, but it is for us. It's for us to learn and grow about in, in Christ's um, salvation. Okay, so all of that was a lot to get us to um, one of, just basically the, the practical ways in which we can start putting these things into in, into. Um, our, our daily Bible study. Um, we have uh, a lot of things that we just unpacked about how all the Bible gets us to Jesus. Uh, the things in the Bible are pointing us towards him. That, that might be people and the things they do. It might be uh, institutions. It might be historical events. They're all meant to get us to Jesus. But in a practical way, what do, how do we start to uh, not feel overwhelmed by this and just have some basic ways to, to get started. 
Um, so that's what I want to do. I just want to give you some basic tools uh, to get us going and so that you can take these things and go home and, and pick a passage um, and, and start just working through it. Um, so if we're going to read the Bible and get to Jesus, we need to learn how to ask the right questions. I think this is really the simplest way to, to help, help us get here is just start with, let's, let's figure out the right questions to ask as we approach the Bible. If you want to get to anything at a deeper level, you've got to learn how to ask and answer the right questions. If you want to know a person, you have to ask them questions about themselves. Right? This is, we, we don't need someone to even tell us that. We just kind of get that. Um, but it's similar with the Bible. If we want to get deeper in the Bible, we need to ask questions. So what are the kind of questions that we need to ask? And what kind of questions is the Bible intended to answer? So this is important. I'm going to give you really just two questions tonight. And the next week, we'll, we'll do two more questions and then talk a little bit more about life application stuff. But um, the, the, the reality is that the Bible is a story about the, the salvation God brings us through Jesus. So those are the things that God, the Bible is going to answer. Those are the kind of categories it's designed to answer. You can't treat this, this thing like it's a, a magic eight ball that's going to give you some vague response of yes, maybe, you know, it doesn't look good or whatever the other ones are. Um, this thing has a specific story that it's telling and our questions need to be in alignment with this. So if you come to this and go, is, I don't know, is Einstein's theory of relativity the right way to look at physics? You're not going to find that out in this. It's not, it's not there. Okay. Uh, it's not meant to answer that question. Uh, it, it can certainly give us truths about things that might relate to that question, but it's not going to directly answer every single question we have. It's a, it's a story of God displaying his glory through the creation and redemption of humanity. And so those are the themes that it's going to answer, which are really the, the big questions of life, right? Not, the, not necessarily all the nuance of life, but the big questions of life, like why, why am I here? What am I... What was I made for? Those kinds of things. Yes, the Bible can answer. So the challenge then is to ask questions that help us see the re these realities when we read the Bible. And it, and it might seem kind of overwhelming, but it's really not that difficult. It's pretty simple. Uh, like I said, there's four foundational questions. Two will be tonight, uh, two next week. And then we'll, go, we'll, we'll talk about some other things besides the, the next two questions next week as well. But... Um, I want to just start with the first two, because otherwise we'll just be here for forever. Um, but here's, here's the first question, very basic question. What does this passage, verse, section of scripture, whatever it is you're looking at, what does this show me about God? Okay, we've already established here that God is the main character of the Bible. He's the main person that we are concerned about in the Bible. He's the first one to show up in the Bible in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's the hero of the story. It is he that brings Christ into the world to redeem us from our sin. So it makes sense that we should ask that question first. Um, here, here's the thing. We're, we're very... Uh, 
Well, you know, we're pretty self-centered people, right? We're, because we're sinners. So what we tend to do, if you, if you want to just imagine, I, I'm not good at sports analogies, as you probably know, but if you think of about a, a baseball diamond, I can, I can at least count to, to three or four or whatever it is. Um, but you have these bases. And if third base is, how does this passage relate to me? What we want to do is we want to hit the ball and run straight there. But that's, that's not the direction we, we should be going. We, we need to actually go in the right order so that we can get the most out of it. If we can't just immediately read a verse and go, What's, what does this say about Tom? What is this about me? That is something we can get to and we need to get there. We will get there, but that's not the first thing. First thing is what does this teach me about God? Um, and, and so let's, let's just unpack this a little bit. The scripture reveals who God is at least in three different ways. And there's probably more, but at least three. First, it shows us God's character or his attributes, who he is, what he's like. Um, sometimes this is very easy to see. Some, some passages we read, it's like, oh, that's right there, right? Revelation 4.8 was an example I, I pulled out for this. Um, we learn there that the four living creatures are standing around or bowing down to God's throne and they're crying out nonstop. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and is to come. Well, it doesn't take a lot of effort for us to see that God is holy. He's almighty, so he's all-powerful. He's eternal. He was and is and is to come, so he's always been. He is now. He will be forever. This, this doesn't take a lot of effort reading that verse to just start to ask that question, what does this passage say about God? And if you just took that passage, what does that say about God's character? Well, it says he's holy, so he's perfect. He's set apart. He's distinct from every, everything he's made. He's almighty, so he has no weakness. He's, right, you, you can just start to take down notes and, and have, a, have a notepad with you as you read your Bible and just start jotting some of these things down. And, and it'll be amazing what what kind of tills up out of, out, of the surf, uh, out of the soil. Other passages, though, that we read um, may, maybe aren't going to be always on the nose when, as it relates to God's character. Um, we may have to infer some things. Okay, so here's an example. 1 Kings 22, 1 to 40. We're not going to read the whole story. Uh, but King Ahab uh, of Israel rejects the word of the Lord and goes into battle with the king of Syria. So God told him not to do that. He decided to do it anyways. The prophet uh, Micaiah has warned Ahab that he is going to die in battle if he disobeys the word of the Lord. So what does Ahab do? Ahab disguises himself or he goes into battle, but he just dresses like a common soldier. He doesn't, so typically the king of a country would be in battle and would have some fanfare around him, would have a you know, special place to stand and different armor than everybody else, would be distinguished, right? Because he's the king and he's an important person and all that. Well, so Ahab thinks, okay, God's gonna, you know, I'm being told that God's gonna kill me in this battle, but I know how to divert that. I'll just dress up like any old soldier, won't draw attention to myself and I'll be fine. Well, as we read the story, we find out that this random, in quotations, um, release of an arrow reveals that God is, in sovereign control over all these things. In verse 34 of chapter 22, it says, but a certain man 
So a nameless person, some soldier on the other side of the battle, drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. And so Ahab dies. He's dressed up like a normal soldier. This random shot from a random guy who doesn't even get his name recorded in the Bible. He throws the arrow off and then hits, hits Ahab right where it kills him. He's wearing armor and it still kills him, right? Like, so, God, so what do we learn about God's uh, attributes from this passage? Well, it's not all directly mentioned in the passage, but we can infer things about God's attributes. We can infer that he's trustworthy because what he said happened. Uh, we can infer that he's sovereign because he's controlled the events of even this random person who shot an arrow. Uh, we, we can infer that he should be, yeah, listened to and obeyed and all those things, right? I mean, and on and on and on we could go with that. But the passages of Scripture, as we're asking the question, what does this say about God and specifically his character, just start to make those notes either mentally or, or on paper and just see what comes out as you study a passage. The second thing that um, we're going to talk about tonight that we can ask about and look at as we're asking the question, what does this say about God? Is what does this say about God's conduct or what he does? So uh, what do we see God doing in a particular passage? And uh, what does that teach us about who he is? So again, there's lots of passages in the Bible and, and any, any passage that you read, you can fill in these questions. And some, uh, some passages will have more information about one or, or more of these than others may, but Psalm 23 is a great example for looking at what the conduct of God is. Uh, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now we can read that passage and, and immediately ask, well, what does this say about us? And there's a lot it says about us. Um, and how God loves us and what he does. But, but we should ask what it does, what he's doing in it first. So look at all those different things that God does for his people in just this one passage. Look at the verbs in this passage. He leads, he restores, he comforts, he prepares, he anoints, right? And, and so by paying attention to what God is doing in a passage will help us grow in understanding God better. So we're asking, what does this say about God? Okay, so we're looking for his, his character. Uh, we're looking for his conduct. And then thirdly, we, we are to look for his concerns. What is God concerned with in a given passage? Is there something that, that reveals his heart and his concern for people or for himself or for any number of things? Um, so again, an example here is Exodus 22, 21 and 22 says, God commands his people, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat 
any widow or fatherless child. Now, again, we got to read this. This is Exodus. This is law. This is Old Testament, Old Covenant Israel. That's the original audience. And so there's probably not going to be a direct correlation necessarily to us right now in this time under Christ. But it does teach us something about what God's concerned about. It makes clear that God values the protection of the marginalized. He, he, he cares about uh, people being treated well. He doesn't want us to misuse or abuse people. And the reason for that we can infer uh, because of we, if, as we understand the storyline of the Bible is that God values us and all people as image bearers of himself. And so God wants his people to be to treat others with dignity and respect. Like, again, we're just drawing out these different areas of God's character, his conduct, and his concerns. So I think these are uh, at least three different angles, and maybe there's more, but for the sake of time, we'll stop with the three of them. And I think these help us see what the passage tells us about God. If we can start with that as we work through a passage and go, what does it say about God's uh, character, what does it say about his his um, conduct, and what does it say about his concerns? And you just kind of write, map that out on a piece of paper, and then just jot down what you're observing. Uh, you're going to get a lot out of it. Um, okay, so that is um, really uh, the most important thing we we can answer in this is what does this tell us about God, and why does that matter? Okay. Um, So starting with what a passage teaches us about God reminds us that first and foremost, the Bible is about him, not about us. And so once that building block is in place, we're ready to ask a a second foundational question. Now, this second question is second for a reason. The first one has to be, what is this about God? Because he's the main deal. But the second question is an important one, and we need to get to it. And it is, what does this passage teach me about people? So people are, as the scriptures teach, the pinnacle of God's creation. Human beings are the center of God's purpose for creation. He made us in his image to reflect his beauty, to rule over the creation he's made under his authority. But we know, as we saw last week, we talked about this a bit, that Adam and Eve rebel against God. And as their descendants, you and I, every one of us enters into this world as a sinner. And so that's clear from Genesis 3. Romans 5 says this very clearly. I mean, Romans 3, it's, all, it's everywhere, right? Those who have turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus, we're told from Ephesians 2 and elsewhere that we've been made spiritually alive. We've been given a new life in Christ and that the Holy Spirit has been given to us, but there's still a process in our lives of fighting sin. We're, we're alive, we're made new in Christ, we're not sinless. We're not, we're not uh, perfect yet in, in practice, although we are perfect in righteousness as God sees us before himself as justified sinners. There's still the actual outworking of this in our lives that needs to be worked on. So, okay, when it comes to learning about what a passage teaches us about people, again, we can take three different angles at this, just as we did with the first question. The first angle, I think, is to... Uh, is looking for aspects of what it means to be created in the image of God. So we're asking questions like, what longings or desire does this passage reveal? 
that are expressions of being made in God's image. One, one passage uh, that, that I can think of is in, um, I think it's in 1 Samuel, where Hannah, who had uh, been barren, uh, much of her life was longing for a child and was praying to the Lord. And I think it's in First Samuel 1. She's praying for, for God to open her womb and give her a child. And uh, there's a lot that she says in there that's, that's really worth studying and looking at. But just on the very basic level, what does her longing or her desire as a, as a sinful woman, but still a woman who loves, loves the Lord and wants to honor him, what is it about that request that points us to to being made as image bearers of God. And I think it ultimately the answer to that is that we are made to multiply and fill the earth. And so this desire to uh, have children and be, you know, be fruitful and multiply is rooted in that reality of God's creation design at the very least. And there may be more, there's probably a lot more that we could unpack from that passage, but that's one example. We also need to recognize that sin does regularly distort our God-given desires and, it twi- and, they, and twists them into harmful directions and expressions. So the second angle that we need to discover as we're unpacking the question, what does this teach me about people? The second angle we, we have to ask is, what does this reveal about humanity in our fallen condition? What, what aspects of our fallen sinful condition does this expose? And um, we can simply describe the fallen condition as sinful beliefs or attitudes or feelings or actions or tendencies uh, that are either mentioned or implied in the text we're studying. Now, in some passages, the fallen condition is absolutely impossible to miss, right? And one example is Proverbs 6, uh, 16 to 19 says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. That whole text is all about sinful, sinful responses, sinful behaviors, things that God hates to see in humanity. Can't miss it when you read some places. In other texts, though, sometimes we have to read between the lines or infer again. And this typically, this inferring typically happens in narratives, in stories, in histories, um, where it's not as like didactic is the fancy word, where it's not as like, here's, here's what we're teaching you. Uh, it's more of here's what happened, here's what we're describing to you. Um, but again, we can go to an Old Testament passage. Um, 1 Samuel 8, after about 100 years of being led by the judges, Israel asks the prophet Samuel to appoint a king for them. And uh, Samuel basically is told by the Lord, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Um, but you need to warn them about what a king is going to do. The, the king's not always going to be good to them. But the people insist on this king and they say, no, but there shall be a king over us so that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So what's the problem here? Well, the problem is, is that God, among many things, it's that God never intended his people to be like all the nations. 
Right? That's, their re- that's their request. They're like, hey, we want a king so we can be like all the nations. Well, you're not supposed to be like all the nations. That's the whole thing. Exodus 19 tells you not to be like all the nations. Um, and so it's just interesting that something that had happened way before that moment in history had already established that the people of Israel were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a set-apart nation, a nation that isn't like all the other nations. And so what we're seeing in this passage, again, as we're making observations and we're writing down what we're seeing, we're seeing the fallen condition here is in rejecting our identity as the people of God and and that they were to be set apart for a special purpose in the world, but they wanted to be like everybody else. So that's just one example. Um, so we're looking at uh, ways that, that we learn about human beings in, in our creation, in, in our image-bearing nature, also in our sinful condition. We're looking at that angle. And here's the third angle. The third angle is uh, to get at what the passage reveals about people is to look for what our lives should look like as redeemed people. Again, we're, we're looking at a story of God redeeming sinners through Jesus. And so the end of the story is not that we're all a bunch of crooks and we're just terrible, uh, but no, that as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are made new. And, and so what should our lives look like as we're made new? And while we get glimpses of this in the Old Testament, for sure, um, it's obviously far more on the nose in the New Testament um, because that's where you have the Holy Spirit actively working in the lives of the believers. And so in Acts chapter 2, it's a great example where the church is, uh, is living out the early church and uh, doing what they're called to do. We're seeing how the Apostle Luke, or, or Luke rather, just describes how uh, the early believers lived out their faith in Jesus, that they shared all things in common, that they broke bread together in their homes, that they worshiped God together. They, right, and we just, we're seeing how redeemed people are living out the gospel in that text. And in, in, you know, I would, I would say that this is where we start to look for. In our, in our language at Springbrook, it's uh, how does gospel uh, doctrine inform gospel culture, right? So this is kind of the piece of where's the culture of the gospel playing out in this passage, uh, that would be kind of the, the vernacular I would use. Um, so the, the passage uh, in Acts also helps us see how the gospel transforms people right, to live as redeemed individuals. We see a redeemed community together. These individuals come together as a church. They were created. They were fallen. They were redeemed. And each of these shed light on what the Bible teaches us about humanity. So... Uh, we will get to the third question next week. Um, but uh, yeah, these, these first two, what does this say about God? And then what does this say about people? And then those three kind of angles that we looked at for each of those. Um, if you just go home and pick a passage and you just start trying to work your way through that, um, you're going you're gonna to be amazed at what you see. And uh, I think you're going to find a lot of fruitfulness from your study of the Bible. Like, and this is what's one of the things that's great is once you start to see things in a fresh way, you get excited about it and you want to do it more, you know. And a lot of times our, our humdrumness about the, the Bible is because it's just kind of stagnant and it feels stale. But, but when you start to employ some basic principles, um, you really get to, get to see the fruit of that. And, and again, I'll reemphasize what I, what I said last week, which was you need to approach this through prayer. Um, you can't expect to come to the Bible 
with your own intellect, your own strength, your own ability. You really need to approach it as a, God, I need your help to, to see what I need to see. I can't do this without your spirit. Open my eyes, open my ears, help me to, help me to understand. And so if you, you approach it with the humility of asking the Lord for help, he, he will. He will ask. He will answer those prayers. I'm confident of that because uh, I'm, I see it every, every week in my own life. And it, it, really, it really is vital that, that God work in and through us. So uh, that's it. That's what I've got. I'll, uh, I'll close us in prayer. I'll um, stop the recording and then I will, um, I'll be around. If you have questions and you want to come up and ask, we can, we can certainly do that. So let me pray. Uh, Jesus, thanks again for, for you and for the work you've done to save us from our sins. We pray, God, that you will give us um, a, just a fruitful, sweet fellowship in your word this week as we go home, as we, as we approach the Bible in our own personal lives, uh, as we prepare our hearts for the weekend, as we come into worship, you, uh, would, you, would you help us all uh, to, to love your word more and grow in it? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>